0: This is John Vecchione, and I'm back with another new civil liberties uh, attorney, Greg Dolan. And last week, Mark uh, had had uh, Janine on, uh, Janine Younis, to discuss the um, case that we've brought against Michigan State University to um, having to do with their uh, vaccine mandates, basically using the CDC to uh, enforce a vax mandate. And that case was dismissed, um, on various grounds and we'll discuss those. And Janine, Janine talked about the problem last week and what we're trying to do, but as Mark said, we'll keep you updated. And since that time, we have filed our appellate brief in the sixth circuit and the sixth circuit is the, um, federal appeals court for, uh, the state of Michigan. And so all federal cases go up there and we have filed our brief and you can see it on our website, uh, at the NCLA website and, um, I recommend you go take a look at it. I thought it was very good, but I have Greg here who helped write it. Um, what are we trying to get the Sixth Circuit to do, and what do we
1: say about this? Oh, uh, thank, uh, thank John. But um, so the basic thing we're trying to do, kind of at the very base level, we're trying to get the uh, Sixth Circuit to reverse the judgment that the Michigan State University won below. Michigan State University won a judgment of dismissal. And our argument is that it's improper and premature for a variety of reasons, including, for example, that to the extent that there was factual debates about vaccine, vaccines effectiveness, et cetera, the judge went with MSU, whereas procedurally it's improper, and it's supposed to go with the plaintiff, who is us. So that's kind of the basic procedural thing. In a more global sense, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the Sixth uh, Circuit to put it on the record and put it kind of in the U.S., case books that when a government is trying to force its citizens to inject foreign substances in their bodies they can't just say oh this sounds rational there's got to be some more uh, some more hoops that they have to jump jump through it's got to be really a at least an intermediate level of scrutiny that's be an important government interest and in there should be the government has to show that this is kind of uh, a sufficiently uh, narrowly tailored means to achieve uh, that interest
0: got it and and um, in this case I found it uh, kind of interesting. This these were COVID vaccines, right? Yes. So this was all in response to COVID. Yes. And um, they, Michigan State said, "Oh, we're 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 allowed to do this because we're the state, right?" Under under Jacobson, because we're really the state. But they followed the federal, they followed the federal. I'm I'm putting I'm doing air quotes for you out in the radio land. Uh, the federal guidelines
1: right? It wasn't a law. Congress didn't pass it. Um, so who's, it, who's responsible? Well, I think you're actually giving Michigan too much credit because they made an argument they followed the guidelines. But in reality, they kind of, they picked, you know, this part works for us, but this part doesn't work for us. And so it's just a complete mishmash of their justification. So it's just one example. Let's assume federal guidelines are good and whatnot. So as, as CDC says Here's the vaccines were approved. These are what people should take. And that's Pfizer, that's Moderna, and that's Johnson & Johnson for some people. But Michigan State says, I don't know, but you can also take Sinovac and Sinopharm, the Chinese vaccines. What are those? These are Chinese-developed vaccines. They're apparently WHO approved. They've never gone through even emergency use authorization in the United States.
0: Fact, you know, we investors coming in from China. Yeah, I don't suspect. I have a dead certainty. That's right. So, be- and you know, profit motive. Right. And so they, the, and, and to, to put a finer point on that, so what they've done that is irrational. That you shouldn't be able to do irrational things. Is, is that. They have said that a uh, vaccine uh, that it, it has extremely low efficacy, extremely low efficacy, um, but that is out there in foreign lands will be okay for you. But what won't be okay if you've had COVID already. So you have natural immunity. Whatever debate there is, I don't think there's anyone who thinks the Sinovac
1: vaccine is better than natural immunity. There, I mean, I, don't, I haven't even seen any literature about no, and it's not, and what's what's kind of and we put it in our briefs, and I think we try to argue to a district court below, but um, you know, just a pure scientific basic medical fact: when you develop a COVID vaccine or small packs vaccine or measles, whatever vaccine you develop, how do you know that it's effective? Well, you test the body's antibody response to the vaccine against the body's antibody response to natural disease, and so only if you get it kind of at the roughly the same level, you say, okay, vaccine works. So necessarily means that, and that's what happened to COVID, right? So when they were developing these vaccines, they were asking, "Well, does it work?" They were comparing people who had the disease with, them. and so this idea that natural immunity, which serves as a benchmark for vaccines, is somehow not enough. But you can take these not FDA-approved Chinese vaccines. That's okay. It's just bizarre. It's not rational, right? And all
0: of our, by the way, all of our clients had natural immunity. They all had COVID before, and some of them were working remotely. So this isn't really about. Because there's no danger to anybody. They're working remote. Some of them are working remotely. They've got, so, um, and Craig, do you have a medical background?
1: I do. I've, you know, I made my mother happy. I got my MD degree. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so, but um, I, when you were talking about this, it, it reminded me of
0: that because I certainly do not. But um, so, why do you think, um, how do you think the Sixth Circuit should approach this problem of, because they have Jacobson? They're staring in the face of Jacobson. And for those of you who listen every week, you know what that is. But basically, it's a case from about 1905 um, uh, or 1910, something like that. And it's, and it's um, the state of Massachusetts was requiring smallpox vaccines. And uh, one of, somebody said, I already had smallpox. I don't want to take your vaccine. And uh, the Supreme Court said, well, they're allowed to do that because I was just reading a Marshall case the other night because um, I'm just that cool. But, um but it was all about how the state is allowed to do things for health that they wouldn't be able to do to govern commerce because and and it, it and so it's a very old case that they're allowed to do things for health and and so they said, well yeah, the state can do this as long as it has a re- been interpreted as a rational basis case. they didn't have the levels and all that. but um it's it's a case that the states always use. the federal government sometimes uses it, and I think it properly, but the states use it and what I always point out is, Smallpox vaccine is a sterilizing vaccine,
1: right? So you, so tell, doctor, right. uh, tell <laughs> me what a sterilizing vaccine so, uh, what I just kind of small point. I don't actually think Mr. Jacobson had smallpox. He just didn't want to take vaccines for other reasons. He said there's scientific debate as to well, whether the vaccine is going to hurt me, aside from smallpox. And the Supreme Court said, look, there's great consensus at that point in the medical community that not only is it a sterilizing vaccine, which means once you take it, you're highly unlikely to get disease. So we had Or a spread it. Of, or spread it, right? So we had a bunch of these vaccines. People get measles, mumps, rubella vaccines. They're kind of, you get it once. Is there a chance you might get a disease later? Yeah, but it's so small that smallpox is one, right? Which is how we managed to eradicate smallpox. Because everybody got the vaccine. There's no more host to get it. And so you can't spread it. COVID vaccine is not a sterilizing vaccine. Which is why we keep hearing about these breakthrough cases, right? Um... You know, when they said, look, it's 98% effective, 96% effective initially at the first round. But now it's 40% effective, and 30% effective, and um, so So that's, that's a huge difference between them. Number two, um, what's interesting is in Jacobson, there was actually a Massachusetts passed a statute given a particular authority of the kind of uh, two medical boards. Here, there's no statute in federal or in Michigan. It's just President of the University or maybe the Board of Trustees. Again, not quite clear who had the authority to do it. The police said... You shall do it or be fired. Number three, um, as we've looked into that we were writing the brief, the fine, the maximum fine, mm-hmm. one-time fine, not kind of down on a daily basis, was five dollars. In Jacobson. In Jacobson, which I, you know, went on inflationcalculator.com or .org, whatever it is, and figured out what is it now? So, you know, five dollars was different back then. So now it's about 150 bucks, which if you ever driven in DC, that's half a course of parking ticket, right? Like, <laughs> so it's not kind of you know it's it's still an imposition on your liberty, but it's not losing your livelihood, which is what happened right. to at least one of our clients who got terminated. Right. So there's all, all sorts of difference, just factual difference between us and Jacobson. But you, but as you mentioned, I think it's just erroneous that the court just kind of assumed that Jacobson is rational basis. It's not. They keep saying it's an important government interest. Keep saying it's like really threatens the house of all, spread of smallpox. And they're suggesting that, look, there's really at that time, no better method of doing it. So it's, they didn't have the levels yet, but if you read it kind of, if you take that and apply it to the modern architecture, it sounds very much like intermediate scrutiny and not rational basis. So I think it's just erroneous that the courts have said, oh, it's the government can do whatever they want. Right. And
0: uh, so what do you, and I think there's also the mission. I think what's happening in Michigan is the legislature didn't want vaccine mandates, and the governor did, and there was some kind of fight about
1: that. But um, what, are, what are the other vaccine policies of MSU? So again, I was um, I was curious, just like you asked, I was curious. So uh, as we're writing brief, we're trying to figure out, well, what, what other mandates do they have and how to justify those? And turns out they don't have any. <laughs> So, for example, there's a whole list of vaccines that they recommend for their incoming undergraduate students. Measles, mumps, rubella, meningitis, hepatitis, etc. None are required. They say, look, if you want to take them, we'll give them to you for free. We have student health services for their healthcare workers. You know, people who are like literally breathing down the mouth and nose of their patients as they're examining them. They don't require an influenza vaccine, or at least they don't require. They give you an option. You can either take a vaccine or wear a mask. Just sign a piece of paper saying, like, I will wear a mask, and that's fine. Uh, even though on their own FAQ website, they acknowledge 50,000 people a year die from healthcare worker transmitted or, you know, from some on which is transmitted by healthcare workers. But like, you can wear a mask. But for COVID, for people who've had it, and I'm, I'm sure our clients, if they were asked, they will be willing to wear a mask if they show up. Right. At the, or, you know, they're a compromise to be had. Correct. But uh, but somehow COVID is special. I know and you hope the Sixth Circuit will uh reverse this. Well we'll reverse it out. Okay, we can three.
0: Okay, we'll be like that. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and uh, Greg uh, Dole and I are here, and I uh, saw an interesting article by Marsha Coyle, uh, who writes for the uh, National Law Journal, and she's telling us about it. Mark and I often discuss court packing and uh, all the various other uh, uh, schemes to change the court now that are because the court's coming out the wrong way for some people. Um, all, all, things to change the court. Uh, and Mark and I go back and forth. I think the, one of the least objectionable is the 18 year, uh, proposal, but, uh, even that they're going to have to either have a constitutional amendment or they're going to have to, they're, they you know, they're, they're, these aren't easy lifts. but the, um, law professors have a lot of time on their hands. No offense, <laughs> uh, at Greg, Greg teaches law, uh, in Baltimore, but, um, but they're always coming up with new designs, new things that they've thought of that after 200, almost 200, uh, 25, 250 years, we, we haven't come up with. And so Marsha Coyle writes that a nonpartisan court reform group is urging Congress to adopt a new approach to changing the U.S. Supreme Court, a combination of term limits and court expansion. So it's both term limits and making more of them. Fix the Court executive director, Gabe Roth, said the proposal is based on what is known as backup law, or contingent design. Which, you know, contingent design. It sounds, uh, it sounds complicated. A concept floated in a law review article last year uh, by, by Mike Parsons of New York University Law School. Rather than settling on one court reform plan, Congress instead should use backup law to layer its policy preferences from most politically desirable to most constitutionally secure. Oh, there might be a conflict between political desirability and the Constitution. Who knew? If the court holds the first preference unconstitutional, the second will automatically take its place. Parsons argue that once the risk of wholesale invalidation or reform laws is replaced with the next best alternative policy, debate can move forward undistorted by strategic considerations about what the court might decide. Well,
1: what do you think about this, Greg? First of all, I think the premise is uh, silly that the court doesn't work. I mean... Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember that when I went to law school, the idea that the court is, is meant to be counter-majoritarian was used to, used to be viewed as a good thing, right? So I never really understood this whole notion of like, oh, well, the court doesn't give majority what it wants, uh, especially on questions that the court actually left to the majority. If majority really wants to protect right to abortion, if they want to protect, uh, you know, if they don't want to spend money on religious institutions pass a law, right? You can codify Roe v. Wade. There's just you know, this notion that Supreme Court standing athwart that um, march of history is just silly. Also, just the other week, New York, or maybe not in the other week, maybe it was earlier this week, New York Times published a nice little graphic about the percentage of decisions that were conservative Supreme Court reach, kind of going back to the 1930s or so. With the caveat, it's sometimes hard to figure out what is conservative, what is liberal decision. Certainly now, yeah. Right, but you know, for example, when one of the last sessions of this term, when uh, the court decided that the state of Oklahoma is concurrent jurisdiction, is that conservative or liberal? Nobody knows, right? But with that caveat for the Indian reservation. Right, for the Indian reservation. So um, the caveat is, with that caveat aside, so the New York Times reported that this term, 74% of opinions came out conservative. But in the same graphic in 19, somewhere mid 60s, 80% came out liberal. And apparently those issues are just fine and should not be overruled. So this whole premise is problematic. But back to your question as to what do I think about these court reform plans? I mean, you know, silly to me that uh, the people who propose and people who take it seriously think that they cannot be strategically manipulated. Time the time, if you can time when you bring your challenge so, for example, if you are, say, a Republican, and uh, you can bring a challenge, and you don't like this law, you can bring a challenge when there's a Republican in the White House, wait for the court to strike it down and have the Republican fill those extra four seats. Or, you know, who says that Republicans will not, when they're in power, will not add additional four seats until we have, you know, 97 judges or something. So I, I think this is all kind of just, as you said, professors having too much time on their hand. I don't think any of it is. Taken seriously anywhere in terms of powers. Are.
0: Well, you know, and I think about
1: this about
0: the structure and about the liberal conservative one. One of the most uh, reviled Supreme Court justices is McReynolds, right? He's supposedly an unpleasant guy. Gave a lot of money to children. That was his. Right. Is the one thing McReynolds was. He had. He, he did a lot for for kids, and he left his state. He'd never married. So he left his state kid. But other than that, I mean Taft didn't like him. Nobody liked McReynolds, right? Except. And um McReynolds wrote the opinion nine zero when the the government during World War One, some some states made laws that you could not send your kids to private schools and, and that you could only be a public school. So the progressives the were in their height, everyone's gotta go to public school. And McReynolds wrote a 9-0 opinion. This is a very conservative guy. You can't do that. Okay, they get to they get to uh, raise their kids. And 9-0, the Supreme Court ruled on that. And I'm like, well, is that a conservative or is that a liberal? Uh, I'm not sure. I know he's be the most conservative guy in the world, but um, but it was nine zero, 0 and um, it was related to things Marshall had even said back in the 1800s. Uh, so it is true that you don't know where. And that was very countermaterial. I'm telling you, in 1917, 1918, uh, the use of German and, uh, and and German schools for all those folks who immigrated and
1: were raising people in the German language was not very popular, right? imagine, right? Uh, no, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where the execution of the day uh, seemed to blind people to consequences. Not even, I'm not talking about hundreds of years down the line, I'm talking about, you know, five years down the line. Look, I remember when, Barack Obama was in the middle of his second term and he was his famous, like, I have a phone and a pen. Uh, what is it? Phone and phone a pen. pen. Phone and a pen. And a bunch of my f- friends, both in real life and Facebook, they're saying like, well, look, Congress is obstructing him, so he has to do something. I kept telling them, look, would you be okay with uh, President Ted Cruz moving a phone and a pen? I could not even imagine that Donald Trump would be president, <laughs> right? So Ted Cruz would be like the scariest guy for the right. Exactly. And the response like, that will never happen. We have a Democratic majority forever. And then, of course, two years later, we had President Trump, and they're like, oh, my God, how can he do these things by executive order? I'm like, well, because you we'll open the door, right? And same thing here. So we can reform courts, and we can certainly talk about it in good faith. I mean, we've added seats to courts of appeals all the time. We've created the 11th Circuit out of the old fifth. There's been a discussion about splitting the ninth for at least, I think, going on 30 years Yeah, now. my whole life, yeah. Right? So... And those are all, you know, some people have, might, might have ulterior motives, but those are all kind of honest conversations. And, and look, and maybe we need 11 justices as opposed to nine. Maybe we need seven. I don't know, right? But we can have those conversations kind of in good faith. But this idea that we need four more because we need to rebalance the court, that's just silly because the next time there's a different party in power, they will also feel they need to rebalance the court and uh, just uh, there will be no stopping point to that.
0: Right. And I... And I do think the other thing about this contingent thing is is that, you know, how many contingencies are there going to be? You put it up. First of all, uh, these guys could strike down everything, right? They could say, ah, uh, because when you bring the suit, you could say, ah, this one's no good. This one's no good. This one's no good. And that contingent's that fourth one that will pop in. That one's bad, too. They could strike them all down. There's no there's no um, gaming this and protect. Particularly, I mean, people like Kagan and Gorsuch—they're really smart. I mean, I think they're 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 pretty clever, and they can um, they can game these things out a little better than than I I think Congress sometimes does. And and the the famous one is um, is when they removed. I don't think there should be a filibuster for judges. I never thought that was. I think that's for legislation. Um, I don't think it's for the appointment clause. So I. Always, I I don't want to say I'm going back. I people have heard me say this before, so I'm not changing my tune on it. But when they did have the filibuster for judges, and Harry Reid said, "Well, we're going to get rid of it for the appellate courts, but not for anything else," well, what happened? Then it was gone in the Supreme Court, and what did that cause? That caused the problem they all don't like now, because the Republican president could put in who he wanted when he had a majority in the Senate. And if if they still had kept the filibuster, then people said, "Oh, it would have changed." I don't think Mitch McConnell would have would change it for this. They would have had a compromise. they have compromised people. You would not have the, you know, number one originalist in the country, supposedly
1: Gorsuch, you know, as the as the replacement. Or, you know, like we could have gone, again, I don't know if it's realistic in today's day and age was Twitter and kind of everybody looking at their soundbite. But, you know, back in the day, most every qualified nominee, unless there was something really in their personal background or they really right. kind of brought, got confirmed nearly unanimously. I mean, Justice Scalia got confirmed 99 or 98 to 0. Uh, Justice, uh, you know, Ginsburg. Judge, Justice Ginsburg got confirmed like 98 to 2. Right, or just, 90 the ACLU 2. lawyer, right? right? I mean, Justice uh, William O. Douglas, I think, was confirmed on a voice vote, right? <laughs> so it just kind of, that was just kind of the the name of the game. Was like, you're not, you're not a crazy person. You're not, personally obnoxious right And you have some credentials and you, you go black them. ku klux klan right, right? Yeah. uh even Thurgood marshall when there was still a number of yes. significant segregationist caucus yep. in the senate i think i've come from like something 68 yep. to like the uh, so. so um yeah, so i mean we could go back to that and you know joe biden gets to appoint kutansha brown jackson and Trump gets to appoint Gorsuch and kavanaugh and
0: the they get you know near unanimous
1: votes that can be you don't need to compromise it's just kind of that's the Right. That's the way we judge people. But, you know, right. maybe I'm too too optimistic or too naive. Yeah, that's true. Uh,
0: it's, it's true. Just um, they mainly look to see if they were corrupt in some way or right. there was some other problem. Uh, I, I remember Nixon had a number of judges rejected. And one of them, I, he was a mediocre, and I will never forget the Senate. I think it was Carlswell. Carlswell, yes. Mediocre people need representation too right now uh, that, that, that was that was the
1: uh always give me, me hope senator <laughs> ruska
0: <laughs> senator <laughs> ruska said hey mediocre people need rep, rep, uh, representation on the court too i always laughed at that that was uh, but he had a number struck down but that was a political fight right um it wasn't an ideological fight i don't think mainly
1: i think i'm blanking on the name but the guy in the fourth circuit his first nominee um mm-hmm. the one before carswell yeah
0: he was,
1: he, he was, he was a chief judge of the forest uh, circuit you know, I've read, a, I've read some history on nomination. It was a political fight because I think it's, it's really the union's them because they viewed them sort of a, it's a bit of an anti-union, but retrospect, you were, you we're not kind of like that. So, well, Greg, it's been really nice having
0: you on the show. And uh, next week, uh, Mark and I will be back and uh, we'll be discussing the the radio and as well. Thanks for listening.